You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Hello, yoga teacher. Welcome to episode 40, a conversation with trigger point therapist and yoga teacher Kat Matlock on the anatomy of stretching. If you enjoyed last week's podcast episode on the relationship between stretching and strengthening with physical therapist and yoga teacher Ferris Fakuri, I think you'll love this week's episode also. In fact, the past three episodes have been a little tour to give you a taste of the teaching style of myself and my co-facilitators, Kat and Ferris, for the series that we have coming up together, which is basically a tour of the human body in motion within the context of teaching yoga. If you live too far away to come to Asheville, North Carolina for five weekends in a row, stay tuned because Kat and Ferris and I are planning to offer a version of this training that is in retreat format. We are also open to bringing the training to other locations, and we may create an online version in the future. For details on this training or updates on similar trainings in the future, go to teachingyoga.net slash anatomy. Now, I hope you're ready to nerd out in a very fun way on the anatomy of stretching with Kat Matlock. Kat, thank you for coming to talk about the anatomy of stretching. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here with you. I'd love to hear just a really brief bit about your background and how you came to be educated on this topic. So I have been a massage therapist since 1993. And in that time, in the last 26 years, I have really focused my study on really understanding anatomy and how the body works as much as one can, and also have been a chronic pain specialist and trigger point therapist for about 26 years. So I work, I've worked with literally tens of thousands of bodies. At the same time that I was getting interested in studying massage therapy, I started a yoga practice. And so now going on almost 30 years, I've been practicing yoga and I've been teaching yoga for 15 years. And I teach anatomy for yoga teachers in different parts of the country and here in Asheville. Let's dive into the anatomy a little bit and start with what's actually happening in the human body when we do this thing we call stretching. Mm, Stretching. First, it would be helpful to understand that we're we're never isolating just a muscle when we're stretching, that we're really working through multiple layers of tissue in the body. And that yes, we are indeed stretching muscle fibers and muscle tissue, but we're also stretching fascia. The two are intimately intertwined and inseparable. I'll explain a little bit more about that in a moment. And we're also stretching nerve fibers and sensory receptors and blood vessels and all of the things, stretching and compressing into organs. So we're really stretching and manipulating tissues um, at all layers in our bodies. Um, And back to fascia and muscle tissue and how they are interrelated. Um, The the smallest um, piece of a muscle is called a muscle fiber. And that 
fi- every single fiber in our muscles is wrapped in a layer of fascia of really strong and flexible connective tissue. And then we bundle um, muscle fibers into little groups called fascicles. And each one of those is wrapped in a layer of fascia or connective tissue, but specifically fascia, a particular kind of connective tissue. And then all those fascicles bundled together are wrapped in another layer of fascia, um, which then creates the container for the muscle itself. And then, so, so at every level in the muscle, we have fascia. And then all of our, um, all the blood vessels um, are also wrapped in layers of fascia, connective tissue. And then this, this fascia is really intelligent. It's receiving and giving information um, to the brain. And so it's embedded with nervous system tissue. So really when we are stretching an area of our body, we are communicating with our brains. We're stretching through fascia or limited by perhaps adhesions or scar tissue or binding in any of those layers of fascia. And it can happen in any layer. Um, And then each muscle is meant to slide its fascial wrapper is meant to slide on the fascial wrapper of the other tissues, the other muscles and things around it. So if there is a, um, so when we're stretching, we're pulling on the muscle fibers, but we're also pulling on many layers of nervous system tissue and fascia. You know, you and I are collaborating with Ferris, who was also recently a guest on the podcast on a training for yoga teachers to help them more deeply understand the human body. And some of these concepts, we're going to bring them up in the training again with more visuals and more ability to, to picture what's going on. Cause some people are more, more able to create a picture in their head than others. But also if you're curious what that looks like, you can, you can just do a Google search too of like anatomy of a muscle. Actually, you know what I'll do is I'll link to a picture in the show notes. Sounds great. Yeah. Yeah, Great idea. Yeah. It's really helpful to see it, that there's this little fiber and it's wrapped in its layer of fascia. It's got its own little wrapper and then bundles of fibers and then each muscle together. So to really understand that um, interwoven layering of fascia throughout muscle tissue. Yeah. And the interconnectedness of all the different parts of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Talk more about the the sensor aspects of the muscles and the the way that they sense stretch. So uh, embedded in muscle tissue is um, little sensory receptors or organs called muscle spindle fibers. Muscle spindle fibers are really cool. They're kind of elongated and wrapped around each end, kind of like a long flat orzo. <laughs> you can imagine what orzo pasta looks like. Um, and then wrapped at each end is a is almost like a little it's a little thread nerve. And when that when when a section of muscle gets pulled and stretched, those orzo, those uh, muscle spindle fibers get pulled and stretched. And once they reach sort of maximum capacity, those little threads on either end send a message to your nervous system that says, we've reached our maximum capacity. This muscle tissue, this tissue should not be stretched anymore. And it will start creating um, what's called the muscle uh, or the stretch reflex, where it sends a message to your brain that, hey, this tissue is actually at its furthest length and it 
is in danger of tearing and your body doesn't want to tear. It's going to try to protect you from damaging yourself. And so it will actually start contracting the muscle. So it initiates a motor response in the nervous system and it begins to contract that tissue to protect it from tearing. The way muscular contraction works is that it's stimulated by the nervous system. A nerve comes down from the brain and has little um, little fingers that uh, at the bottom that have little bulbs on the end of them that connect and communicate with different muscle fibers. Um, um, a muscle may have a thousand nerves, nerve endings coming into it, communicating with all different sections of the muscle. So our muscles don't contract all at once, like the entirety of my biceps is not going to contract every time I need to lift a fork to my mouth to eat. Um, only as much contraction is needed to do the job that I'm asking it to do um, will happen. And it happens because only certain sections of the muscle are going to be contracted at any given time. When we have tone in a muscle, it means that nervous stimulating certain section of the muscle to contract, that section of the muscle contracts, and then other parts of the muscle are, are in relaxation. And then when we have tone, then as the section that's been contracting releases, another section of the muscle picks up the contraction, which is why when we go to sleep, we don't turn completely flaccid. We keep some tone and general shape of our muscles. We can build tone in our muscles by um, increasing the demands on our muscles by doing push-ups or longer holds in poses, strengthening uh, yoga postures, even weightlifting. Those kinds of things send messages to our nervous system that, hey, in general, I'm going to want to be able to activate more of this muscle. So more of our muscle will stay in uh, a state of contraction to create this tone in our tissue. Now, tone can turn into tension when a part of the muscle gets stuck in contraction and it never releases. So we might have section A of a muscle contracting and then section B is in relaxation. And then when we're flowing through this pattern of tone contraction in our muscles, section B contracts, but section A doesn't release. And then another section of the muscle, section C contracts, and section A still stays in contraction. In my world, that's called a trigger point, and they're, they're focal points of tension in our muscles. They're always stuck in a state of contraction, and so they can't release which means they can't stretch. They're always gonna feel a stretch as a threat. So if you're carrying a lot of tension in your muscles, it will be more challenging, and this is why it's more challenging to stretch those tissues because there's a reflex in the nervous system protecting that tissue from tearing. Um, yeah, is that clear? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and help me help me visualize this. When we're talking about the tension, mm -hmm. are, are we talking on the level of individual muscle fibers, fascicles? Um, like, how big are the bundles of fibers, and or does it depend? 
Mm -hmm. That's a great question. And it does depend on the muscle, but it really is how whatever fibers a particular neuron is communicating to. And those are typically within a particular fascicle. Um, it may not be the entirety of the fascicle, but it, it often is, and it will um, communicate with the fibers within that section only. And so just that piece will contract when the message is sent down the neuron. Okay, mm -hmm. great. And that's, and just to, just as a reminder, in case this is a new concept to you, that the fascicle is a bunch, a bundle of individual muscle fibers, each of those muscle fibers wrapped in connective tissue, and then the bundle also wrapped in connective tissue with nerve fibers running through. Yes, exactly. And then if we imagine the muscle tissue, um, a muscle as a rope, and if we tie a knot in the rope, let's say it's a natural rope like hemp fiber rope, <laughs> so that when you pull on the ends of the rope, the fibers that are not tied in a knot are going to stretch and lengthen. But the ones that are tied in a knot, actually, that's where the tension begins to focus, right? It, the pull will focus on that part of the muscle or that part of the rope that is tied in a knot. And in our muscle tissue, that part of the rope that's tied in a knot is actually tension. It's a place in the muscle that is stuck in contraction. So the muscle is the rope. The knot is a part of the muscle that is stuck in contraction. So everything that's not stuck in contraction will lengthen. It, muscles that, muscle fibers that are not being contracted at, due to a nervous system communication, you know, if they aren't being stimulated to contract, they will lengthen. It's just what they do. They're either contracting or they're not. And if they're not contracting, they can be pulled and lengthened, no problem. So if we have... If we're pulling on a place that where there's tension, um, we will most likely initiate that stretch reflect, that protective me mechanism, because since it's receiving a message to contract, it can't lengthen. It can only tear. And again, our bodies don't want to tear. Our bodies, our nervous system is set up to protect us from harming our tissue. What that place of contraction can be happening because there's that tension in the muscle. Um, and, and then that leads into other things that could be limiting. So that would be a limit to mobility in, in an area of the body that you would be limited by that response of the body trying to protect that area of tension. And what it feels like, it's called the stretch reflex, but what it feels like is a contraction. What it actually does is forces the muscle to contract a little bit to kind of pull back on that ends of the rope so that the tissue doesn't tear. So if you're, if you're in a stretch, in your practice and you feel actually that you're getting tighter, you actually might be. You might have pulled a little bit too much on a muscle that's holding tension. It can't release that tension. And so it may then have initiated the stretch reflex to limit the pull on that tissue. So what you're saying is that for a lot of people, stretching is not going to effectively help them release tension in their muscles. 
Correct. It's not necessarily going to do that. And it also leads a little bit into a discussion about fascia because at every, in every stretch, we are also stretching fascia, which is also innervated, which is also communicating with the nervous system. And so we can release binding in fascia when we are stretching and we can develop more buoyancy in our fascia with some dynamic stretching or engaged stretching. It can be difficult to discern what level of tissue are you specifically working at at any given time because they're so interwoven, right? So for me, how I guide people is to find that first place of stretch and then to actually engage the muscle a little bit so that the muscle doesn't have to reflexively contract and limit your movement, but actually in your own engagement kind of lets the nervous system know that you're present and that you're paying attention and it doesn't have to protect you from, from going too far, that you're actually participating in it and you can extend that stretch reflex to um, a further place, if that makes sense. Sure. So you are recommending some moderate levels of engaging the muscles as we stretch, eccentric strengthening. And that is a term that was used last week in last week's podcast episode with Ferris also. So hopefully listeners will either be familiar with it or will go back and listen to that. Where else do we take this as yoga teachers? How can we use this information to help our students and to inform our own practice? I feel that it's important to understand that going deeply into a stretch is not necessarily recommended, is not what I would recommend. I'd say that it's helpful if you move just to that first place of stretch. Go into that first place of stretch and explore that edge and explore that edge with a little bit of engagement. Now, it can we can play with that edge of stretch because um, in a few different ways. One way is that it takes about three seconds for the stretch reflex to activate. So you can actually go into a little bit uh, further of a stretch in an area. Let's say you're stretching the hamstrings and you can go a little bit further into an area of stretch, hold for two seconds and then back off and then go a little more deeply into the stretch. So let's say you're laying on your back, leg is up in the air, you're using a strap, and you can kind of pull that strap in, get a nice deep stretch, and then back off after two seconds. And if you keep pulsing in and out like that, hold two seconds, back off, hold two seconds, back off, you can train those muscle spindle fibers, and you'll actually be freeing some of the sliding surfaces of the, the fascia. You'll be freeing some of those fascial binding places to allow the stretch to actually, <clears throat> excuse me, live a little bit more in the muscle. And you're letting the muscle know that I'm not going to go too far. It's important to actually build trust with your nervous system. And this way we're building trust in our nervous system. And then we can also engage when we're going to hold a little bit. So if we want to engage, we kind of push back into that strap or hold the back of the thigh with the hands, interlace the hands behind the back of the thigh and push the thigh into the hands as we're pulling. So the arms win the tug of war, but there's a resistance to the stretch. You engage the tissue that you're actually stretching. And so what that does is it kind of overrides that the place where there's uh, too much tension 
and allows the rest of the muscle to open and your body doesn't have to go into that reflexive contraction. At the same time, we can take it further into what's called proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitated stretching, where you pull into a stretch and then push back really strongly. And you hold that about 30 seconds. And then you back off the engagement a little bit and you can actually often go much further because what you're doing is training the whole of the muscle, this huge section of the muscle by contracting it so much that it tones down the sensitivity of those muscle spindle fibers. And that's why that's why proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitated stretching or PNF stretching works because you're actually working with those sensory receptors, building some tension around them so they're not just in there ready to freak out when you pull on the muscle. Because we're also talking about fascia layers, there's a scientist, his name is Robert Schleip, S-C-H-L-E-I-P, Robert Schleip. And he's in Germany, and he is arguably one of the world's leading fascia researchers. He has a, a book called Fascial Fitness. One of the things he talks about is also the best way in his research, 20-some years of researching connective tissue and fascia, and what's the best way to create healthy fascia in the body? It's dynamic movement and engaged stretching. So that because of the way that it puts pressure and allows opening in the connective tissues at the same time, um, that this engaged stretching is really the healthiest for your connective tissue based on his research. And then based on my research, I believe it's also the best and healthiest way to work with your muscle tissue because you're also honoring that uh, nervous system level within the tissue itself. All of the conversation around the interconnectedness and the connective tissue and the slide and glide, it makes me think of the different types of movement nutrition that we want to provide our bodies in addition to just stretching. Sometimes people think of yoga as really being focused on stretching, but it doesn't have to be. Right. And so some other inputs I think that are helpful are pressure, which you and I both use balls, different sized, different mm -hmm. density balls to provide mm -hmm. pressure to the muscles. And then also you mentioned movement. And I think of, you know, there's, there's lots of movement that is, are both strengthening and stretching where yeah. By stretching, I mean that they improve the range of motion in a joint while also improving stability at the same time. So those are like the other two pieces that I want to add into this recipe book for some different ways to provide healthy loads to the human body. Movement is key. And I think that sometimes in yoga, I've seen some, I've been able to observe some older yogis who uh, spend long time holding poses and they're very strong in that position. But then when I see them moving in and out of a posture, they're not steady. They don't appear to be as strong. They maybe have trouble getting up and down off the floor. They can do amazing yoga postures because they've done them for a long time and they're very strong in that particular way. And so I think it's important to, um, to you know, it made me start looking at it like, huh, they can seem really strong, but then they have these, the movement piece, moving in and out of the postures or getting up and down is tricky. And so I think it's really important just having some functional 
basic functional movement capability within your body. You know, squats are one of the best things I think you can do for your body um, because they increase that mobility and increase stability in large muscle groups in the body. Something that's important to understand why movement and dynamic movement is so important is that um, it's incredibly healthy for the joints because movement is the only way that we flush old fluids and tissue out of our joints because our joints live in a um, in a fluid environment. So the compression in the joint flushes out old fluid and then the release um, will our body will respond with a rush of fresh fluid into that joint or into any area of our body that we compress, which is one of the benefits of rolling on balls and foam rollers is that we actually increase circulation to the area, which is great for blood, blood flow and repair and all of those things. But I have studied with uh, Gil Headley, um, who is one of my favorite anatomy instructors. Last year, he was on tour talking about the moving, the sliding surfaces in the body. Body, and that in between every muscle, which is wrapped in its own little wrapper of fascia, there are three very thin, trans, translucent, maybe even transparent layers of fascia that live in fluid. And so, which, is, which points to a danger in dehydration. If you allow your body to dehydrate systemically, you limit the, the sliding surfaces of your muscles and organs and tissues because they uh, live in, in this uh, viscous fluid uh, environment in your body in between everything. So everything has this, what he found was about three layers and every place that he looked of this very thin, very thin, fine layer of fascia of connective tissue. And so when we don't move our bodies and challenge our full range of motion regularly, the parts where we're not moving into our full expression of our range of motion and mobility those areas dry out and can get stuck together because fascia is a connective tissue and its nature is to connect and bind. So those areas can get sticky, dried out and stuck, and then you begin to lose mobility in that area, which as we have said, everything is connected. So you lose mobility in one section of your hip, the entirety of your system is going to have to or reorient itself around that. Um, and so I think that moving, especially as we get older in our practice, moving in and out of the poses in a fluid way helps the tissues on opposing so opposite sides of the joints to communicate with each other and build good communication. And one has to give while one takes and build strength in that communication and strength in, and stability in that movement as well as keeps those sliding surfaces sliding <laughs> and moving on each other. So that movement, dynamic movement, keeping things lubricated is so important, all the way down to the very fine places in between all of our tissues. I loved how you used the word functional, and we're talking about functional movement, because yoga can be done in a way that is more functional and less functional. Some of that is going to depend on an individual body, but that is why I find studying the human body to be so important because it gives us some context to be able to experiment in our own practice and, and what is functional for my body. And so that's why when you and Ferris and I created this 
series, we called it functional anatomy for yoga teachers because we want to make sure that the information that we're providing helps you create a more nourishing movement environment for your body. And that it's not just about cutting your body into these little pieces and having this one worldview or this one, you know, way of doing things, but instead that you get to experiment on your body and, and that you have the tools to continue to deepen your own knowledge and to respond and adapt as your body changes. Oh, yes, absolutely. It's so important. And one of the things that comes off of that in my mind is this, um, that we have our, our fluid in our bodies. We, after about the age of 35, we have a tent, we start dehydrating. We, it's just a natural process in our bodies. So once we reach the age of 35, our bodies are less forgiving and the tissues become slightly more rigid and then perhaps slightly more rigid, and then perhaps later on a lot more rigid. So having that functional movement and understanding of what that means and that everybody is different, that we, we honor the fact that we begin to dehydrate after a certain time and we have to really pay attention to bigger movements. Um, and also that everybody has a different movement potential. So we have structural variances um, where maybe the shape and size of the socket that my hip goes into, my hip bone, my femur goes into, um, if it's really deep, that socket, the femur is going to sit more deeply in there and there might be less movement potential at that joint than there is for someone who has a very shallow socket. And Everyone has that in their own bodies if we relate the movement capability or potential at the shoulder to the movement capability and potential of the hip. The shoulder joint itself, the, the glenoid fossa is almost a flat surface and that's our socket in our shoulder, but it's almost a completely flat surface. So it gives a great range of motion potential in the shoulder, whereas in the hip, the hip socket itself is much deeper. And so the femur sits in the ball and that socket sits more deeply in it. And the, the lip and the, the sort of roof and shelf around that uh, socket um, comes over and wraps around that ball a little bit more. So that naturally limits the movement. Now within that, every human has their own different depth and size of the ball in the socket and length of the neck of the femur in the socket. And so there's so many variances and it's important to really connect in with your own body and not try to look like someone on a poster or someone next to you in class because your movement potential might be really different and you might be really widely open in your hips in one particular direction, but then really limited in movement in your hips in another direction. That's very normal. And so I, I resist this idea that if everyone just does enough yoga, they can look like whoever's on the poster of the month, right? <laughs> but just to find it's a, what I love and honor about yoga is that it's a deeply personal practice and it helps us to go into our bodies. And then we bring in the science, the anatomy, um, understanding how our nervous systems work and limit or increase our mobility. And then we play and we find those edges in our own bodies, honoring each step of the way. 
so that we can really be healthy, make, make good choices in our practice for ourselves, what truly helps our mobility and strength because the end goal is not to be so wide open that your joints just kind of fall apart. I mean, there's especially, and I know you, Mado, your, um, your body is very mobile. And so I know that um, for someone who has a lot of mobility, it's important to uh, do more stabilize. It might be more important to do more stabilizing work. And so every practice is not meant for every single person. Yeah. I have to laugh because my body is naturally more like I, I, I did get a more mobile model to begin with, but the last eight, nine years, nine years I have spent stabilizing and I'm no longer that mobile, frankly. I mean, I am plenty mobile. I am plenty mobile for function, but I can't do many of the poses that were kind of on the fancier edge of what I used to be able to do. I can't do anymore, but it's fine because here's the thing. They weren't functional for me, even when I could do them. Yeah, exactly. They were impressive and beautiful, Mm -hmm. but they weren't good for me. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so I, I can let go of those. Yeah. And right now I'm, I'm very focused on building mobility without leverage. Mm. Of course, I'm also focused on building strength and capacity and endurance. But on the mobility side, one of the fun things in my practice right now is how can I take poses that originally have a component of leverage and take the leverage out? So for example, as a game, fun game for everybody, think Gomu Kasana arms, but Uh you don't get to touch your back. Try it. Try it. Oh, yeah. Whoa. That's hard without putting, especially the bottom hand, like for me to not be able to slide on my back. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a good place to wrap up unless you have any last pieces that you really want to make sure get either included or emphasized to understand that each human body begins with its own level of um, structural range of motion capacity and that yoga is not necessarily meant to push into those far reaches of that capacity that like you said so beautifully it's not it might be beautiful to go into some really deep funky poses but it's not necessarily functional and if it's limiting your structure your uh, structural stability then that's a place to look at in your own practice and that when we are working through yoga practice and stretching that we're working with many layers of our body. And I think that we in the yoga world tend to get stuck on the muscles, you know, and now fascia is a big thing. Everybody's into fascia. And so I want to help people understand what that means and that we are never operating just at the level of muscle or fascia and that we also are always operating within our nervous systems as well. And that there's all kinds of reflexes and communication that happens and a reflex we cannot control. And so it's really beneficial to understand what those messages are in our bodies, like the stretch reflex, feeling a stretch get stronger and stronger. Maybe you should back out of that stretch then. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going deeper. It might mean that your body's trying to protect itself from tearing. 
Um, and to always in your practice, honor yourself in your body, to breathe deeply, loving appreciation for this magnificent human form that we each have. And that yoga ultimately is a path of exploration. Beautifully said. And if you are inspired to come and study the magnificent human body more deeply, Kat and I would love to help you with that. I will include a link to register for our upcoming functional anatomy series in the show notes. I'm already getting requests for people to put it online. I don't know if that's going to happen or not. Well, it's been such my pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you, Kat. I hope that conversation with Kat was enjoyable for you and that it inspired you to dive more deeply into your anatomy studies. And of course, your studies of biomechanics and kinesiology. Check out episode 38 if you haven't yet for more info on that. Learning about the structure and the function of the human body has been incredibly humbling and empowering at the same time for me. It's been humbling in a good way because it will never be finished. The human body is so complex, so intricate, that I'm never going to know it all, and none of us are ever going to know it all. So that's actually exciting for me because I do tend to get a little bit bored of any topic that's overly simplistic. So anatomy and the human body, that is not going to (laughs) happen. It's also been empowering because as I start to understand what I do and don't know about the human body, I'm able to offer my advice and my perspectives to my students with a sense of confidence of not only knowing what I know, but also feeling comfortable with what I don't know. That it's okay for me to say, I don't know that. And on some topics, it would be, I don't know that, and really nobody can know that. Or maybe you need to figure that out for yourself experientially. I kind of touched on this in episode 38, but I am frankly somewhat embarrassed by the authority with which I used to tell people how to move their bodies. I guess it's kind of like that saying of you don't know what you don't know. And a little knowledge is very dangerous. So the more that I increase my level of understanding of the human body, the more I understand, wow, there's a lot I don't know. And this human in front of me or these humans in front of me, you know, they're the ones who are going to have to live with the consequences of whatever it is I'm teaching in class. So I feel inspired to give a lot more empowerment back to my students. And I also share with them the reasons behind what I'm teaching. Because there's always a reason when I when I share something in class, I'm never just doing it kind of randomly. There's always a purpose behind it. And it's no longer, this is what I was taught, but instead it's, this is in my experience, what is supportive for this purpose in this context. So if you want to continue the conversation and if you want to empower yourself to have more understanding about the choices that you're making in your classes... I hope that you will join Kat and I and Ferris Fakuri from last week's podcast for a five-week series where we distill the most important aspects 
of anatomy, kinesiology, and biomechanics specifically for yoga teachers. And we'll do practices, you know, gentle practices, easy practices, but we'll put all of the information that we give you in the context of your own body and the types of things that you're going to be teaching your students. The series begins March 10th, 2019, but there is an early bird rate. So you'll save $50 if you register before February 27th. More details are available at teachingyoga.net slash anatomy. And if you're listening to this later on, you'll be able to find updated dates and maybe different formats or different locations at that same link, teachingyoga.net slash anatomy. That's it for today. I hope you have an amazing week where you keep learning and growing and you enjoy that amazing body of yours. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.